Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here in the sanctuary and across the street also, and also online if you're worshiping with us that way. We're glad that you could be with us, and uh, we finally this morning finish uh, the book of Romans. And I say finally because if you've been here for a while, you know we started this way back in September uh, when it was sunny and warm, and now we're finishing and it's sunny and cold, but we'll be warm again soon. a great deal to cover even in this last section, Romans chapter 16, so we'll take a moment to pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we can gather here, and we trust and ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would now teach us, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, that you might shape us to be people of hope in this moment in history. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And when I say in prayer this moment in history, what I mean by that is if you'd have asked me last September what Romans is about, I would have said to you, Romans is about reconciling with God and living a mature uh, uh, relationship with, with Christ, living in a mature relationship with Christ. It's about this vertical relationship predominantly. I, I would say that now having taught Romans at this moment in history, the convergence of the moment in which we find ourselves and the text I would now give you a different answer. If you ask me what is Romans about, I would say Romans is about the gospel's power to reconcile people vertically with God so that we can be a reconciling force in the world horizontally. So we're reconciled with God for the purpose of being reconciling people horizontally. In fact, the, the gospel, the good news, is that history is headed toward this radical reconciliation of every warring tribe, every warring element, so that Everything at the end of the story is united in Christ. And this is incredible news in this moment because we live at a time in history where uh, factions are not only present but deepening and growing. We see factions in our culture in many, many ways. Politically in America, we see Democrats and Republicans fighting. We see men and women. We see uh, white people and people of color. We see rich people and poor people. We see socialists and capitalists. We see homeowners and, and, and the homeless. We see the educated and the uneducated. And there's all, in every case, there's factionalism that is present in our culture. And the, not only are the factions not going away, the factions are getting worse, right? Uh, so the response often to, to the kind of the tribalism that is the 21st century is either kind of join a tribe and then lob uh, kind of verbal grenades at the, op- the opposing side or to say, you know what, I'm sick of fighting, and then we withdraw into kind of private life and say, my life is going to be about skiing, or my life's going to be about good coffee, or my life's going to be about whatever it is, my own personal wealth and well-being. Neither of those responses are healthy. There's a third response, very important. And Paul really articulates this third response in Romans 16 in the conclusion of his letter by articulating three important values. And it's these values we're going to look at this morning, and I hope by the end of the morning that you not only see these values, but that you begin to put these values into practice in your own life, the value of affirmation, the value of unity, and the value of hope. So these three values really define uh, Romans, but they define Paul's values as an exemplar of what it means to follow Jesus. If I follow Jesus, affirmation, unity, and hope should be in, like the very air that I breathe, the food that I eat. These three values should define my life. Let's look at them together. So we begin here with Paul's example of affirmation. He exemplifies all three values. And we look at the example of affirmation in verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16 
aren't sometimes covered in a, like a Bible study because these are just a, this is a list of names, right? So you've got all these names and I'm not gonna go through all of them here because there's 26 different names, A, and B, they're hard to pronounce. So forget it, I'm not gonna say anything about them. Uh, but, but it's clear when we look at this that Paul is writing to the church in Rome and in this concluding statement, you see the church in Rome is first of all a diverse, it's a diverse body. It's a diverse community. Uh, diverse in what ways? Class, gender, and race, at least. In, and in other ways too, probably, but we look at these. Class, for example. Some of the names here are the names of people who we know historically were people of royalty, wealth, and high rank. In other words, these are people with means and power. So uh, Aristobulus, verse 10, Narcissus, verse 11, are, both are said to have been heads of estates, not just that head of a house, but head of an estate. So they're, they're running a, kind of a wealthy household and they're in position of power. And people who have power also are able to leverage influence in significant ways. And that's uh, Aristobulus and Narcissus. Now, uh, there's a diversity of gender as well. Of the 26 names here, uh, approximately, it's either eight or nine, depending on Junia, and we'll get into her in a moment. Uh, I'm gonna say nine. Nine of the 26 names are women. And it's interesting that Paul singles out many of them as having worked very hard in the ministry, verse 12. And this, along with comments about Phoebe in verse one, uh, who's either the head of her church or the head of her household, or both, show that women were very active, very influential in the ongoing ministry and mission of the church. And then we come to this name Junia here, which is a very, very interesting name. Junia is likely uh, uh, an apostle here. So we see the name uh, Junius, or Junia, in verse six. Uh, my kinsman, my fellow prisoner, greet Andronicus and Junius, or Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles. I say Junius or Junia because this is one of the most interesting little things in the Bible. If you're into kind of Bible trivia, if you're a Bible geek like I am, then you really love kind of the history of this name, Junia. So if you, depending on the Bible you're looking at right now, you either see Junia or Junias, right? It's one or the other. And why would, why would different Bibles have different names? Well, this is very interesting. From very early on, the, like the, the vast majority, all, all early texts but one have the name Junia here. And then one text has the name Junius. Now here's why this is a big deal. Uh, we're told that Junia is outstanding among the apostles. And the, the most kind of logical reading of this would lead us to the conclusion that Junia is an apostle. And an apostle in the early church carried the, like that title, carried a weight of authority. Even if you weren't like one of the original 12 apostles, which Junia isn't, uh, because you didn't like see Christ with your eyes, Paul didn't see Christ that way either, other than by revelation, but Paul's an apostle. And anyone, apostle literally means a sent one. So I'm sending you to declare a message in a new community, you're an apostle. That's like you're sent. And so you're sent then what? With authority. So Junia is an apostle and her name is Junia and Junia, on all of Greek, is only a man. Think the name Joanne. There's, I, I don't think there are any men named Joanne. Now there may be, but I don't think so. So when you read it, you go, oh, it's all, when you read Joanne, you're like, oh, that's, that's a man. 
Oh, excuse me. <laughs> That's a woman, <laughs> right? I do that sometimes. Totally the opposite of what I want to say. So, Joanna is a woman. So what happened here is the text read Junia, listen to this, all the way until 1927. In 1927, though the manuscript evidence is all the manuscripts read Junia, one reads Junius, in 1927, uh, a, a translation came out, the Nestle translation of the Bible. Like, it's, it's not even a translation, it's a Greek Bible, but it's like, it still is a translation. Do you understand? Like, it's an interpretation, because this is one example of interpretive stuff. So in 1927, Junia becomes Junius. So if Junia is like Joanne, Junius is like John, right? A male, male name. So uh, in 1927, becomes Junius. One manuscript had Junius, hundreds had Junia. And the footnote in 1927, it's Junius, and the footnote says, some manuscripts have Junia. Some? <laughs> All but one, right? That's some, I guess, technically true. Uh, so Junia becomes a footnote in 1927. And then in 1979, in this little red Bible, it's a Greek Bible. We all have in seminary, at least I did in my seminary, this little red Bible. Uh, in 1979, even the footnote disappeared. So Junia was executed by theologians, right? Like, she no longer exists, and, and it's Junius. So in my Greek Bible, uh, when I was in seminary, it's Junius, even though the overwhelming evidence of the manuscript is what? Junia. Why do I say this? Here's why. Because the church has a long history of persecuting women who begin to flourish. A long history. Joan of Arc begins to flourish. She's persecuted. Hildegrin of Bigen begins to flourish. She's persecuted. Teresa of Avila begins to flourish. She's, she's persecuted. The Bogomils, this whole movement of nuns, they started owning their own property and stuff. Boom. No, we gotta put a stop to this. Like over and over again, we see women here pushed out of the margins and what Paul is doing in this writing is he's saying, wait a minute, there are women of influence, women of significance, and yes, even women of leadership, bless them. That's what he's saying. Just, women are just one example of this important thing, diversity of class, diversity of gender, diversity of, of, of socioeconomic setting. Paul's vision is that the church in Rome would be this beautiful display of the reconciling part of the gospel because to be blunt, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome was not reconciling. It was beautiful if you're a man and a property owner and a Roman citizen. But if you failed on any of those counts, you're on the outside looking in and you don't get to enjoy the peace, you don't get to enjoy the prosperity, you don't have the rights, and now the church rises up saying, wait a minute, there's a more unifying power than the Pax Romana, quote unquote, peace of Rome. The greater unifying power is what? The gospel. Men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, homeless, homeowners, PhDs, dropouts, all <laughs> displaying Christ. Wouldn't it be beautiful if the people of God had a testimony of being reconciling people. And Paul is saying that right here. Because of course this was God's plan all along. God is reconciling all peoples to God, listen, so that 
we can be reconciled with one another. That's why we read this book, uh, White Awake, here, and had Daniel Hill come and talk to us, because racial reconciliation is not just a thing, it's a testimony of the power of the gospel to bring people together. So that, so that we begin to live out what Isaiah 2 articulates, uh, the kingdom of God being every, every nation joining hands, saying, hey, let's go up to the mountain of God. We're sick of fighting. And, and now in Christ, there's going to be justice and reconciliation for all people. That's the vision. So lots of diversity in the church. That's the first thing. Second thing, um, Paul have, offers affirmations for those who need it. Like these people need to be affirmed and the reason they need to be affirmed is because being a Christian in Rome was incredibly difficult. At most there were a few hundred Christians and the fundamental message of this new religion wasn't that people get to go to heaven, though they do. The fundamental message is that there's a new king and a new kingdom which sounds kind of innocuous to our ears today but not so much if you're Caesar, right? Like if you're Caesar and you're the king of Rome and, and now there's a new king, you hear about a new king, the new king is a threat to the, old, to the existing king. And so, you know, that's why Herod had babies killed at the time of Christ's birth. Because when the Magi came, they said, hey, where's, where's this new king? We've come to worship him. And Herod goes, what new king? Oh, you know, the new king. The star told us about the new king who's going to come. And so Herod said, I don't want a new king because of the new king, I'm not king. And so all the babies, you know, executed. That's why John the Baptist was killed by Herod when John confronted him about having an affair because uh, John said, hey, in this new kingdom, uh, it's, if you're married, it's not okay to sleep with somebody else. I'm calling you to covenant fidelity as a picture of God's covenant fidelity to us. And John the Baptist didn't like that. He killed, excuse me, Herod didn't like that. He killed John the Baptist. This is why persecution broke out again and again in the early church because of this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Because it, this phrase was articulated in worship at a time when Caesar was declaring himself to be Lord. I, Caesar, am king over all kings. And along comes somebody who says, oh, wait a minute, there's a higher king. And this is why persecution broke out again uh, in, in Germany in the 30s against some Christians because there were Christians who wouldn't say we, like, we swear unswerving loyalty to the state. No, there's a higher king than the state. There's a, there's a more important flag than the American flag. We're in a different kingdom. And in this kingdom, it's not about nations. It's not about class. It's not about gender. It's not about wealth. It's about being in Christ, period. Testimony of unity. The reconciled part of the gospel. So, uh, uh, these people needed encouragement because they were suffering. We know from the book of Hebrews that Christians were beginning to lose property. They were being tossed in jail. We know that within a few years, many of them were going to be executed for their, for their faith. So very difficult to be a Christian. And when people are discouraged by living and doing the right thing, what, discour what do discouraged people need? It's not a hard question. What discouraged people need is, anyone? Encouragement, right? And now, so in the room here, maybe don't raise your hand, but who in the room has been discouraged this week? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but I bet if you did, some hands would go up, right? You're discouraged. So now, I mean, this is one of the things we're learning here in Romans 16 is the profound power of encouragement. We, I mean, we have to learn this. We need to learn the power of being encouraged. Uh, in my own 
tenure here at Bethany, I've gone through seasons of encouragement and discouragement for a whole bunch of reasons. Some personal, some professional, right? And it's true for all of us. There's times when we're encouraged, times when we're discouraged. I'm going to share with you now that when, at the times when I'm discouraged, what has sustained me and prevented me from, you know, cashing in my chips and checking out has been your encouragement. And it's happened too many times to count. Your encouragement sustaining me. Now, please hear me. This is not some covert plea for encouragement, all right? <laughs> because I never asked for it and you gave it anyway, and now it's no good, right? Like, because if you give it to me today, you'll be like, I'll be like this, for whatever, you listen to the sermon. Yeah, yeah, I don't need that, right? I need it when I didn't tell you. Like, I remember giving my wife flowers once because she, I said, what would be meaningful to you? She said flowers, and I gave her flowers. She says, it's meaningless now. Because I told you, I told you, some of the men are shaking their heads in the room, they understand. Like, you can't say, do this for me. So I'm not saying that. But, but I am, this is what I'm saying. I'll give you one example. Super low moment, and I was like, is, this, is hard, this is hard work because you don't know, ever know. I mean, you just do this thing and it's gone. At least when I chop wood, there's a pile of wood at the end of the day. I do this, you're out, scattered, who knows what happened? Did you all sleep through that? Who know? I don't know, I don't know what happened. So you get discouraged at times. Anyway, I was in a season of discouragement and a young girl came up from the very back row and she handed me a letter and with kind of tears in her eyes, she said, this is my last Sunday here, I'm going off to college. And uh, she said, I just want you to know the impact that how God has used you. Uh, I, I have never come to church in my life, never come to church in my life. And I started attending here because my uncle, who uh, is your neighbor from where we lived here in the city, my, who doesn't go to church at all, I was super depressed and my uncle said, oh, you're depressed, you need, oh, you want, you're looking for God? Well, I know where you should go. This guy never has been here, still. He says, I know where you should go. You should go here, you should go here, Richard. You should go here, Richard. And so forget about whatever, I don't like that. You should go to Bethany is what would be the right answer, but whatever. So she comes and she'd sit in the back row and then she'd go off to, then she went off to college eventually. And so her last Sunday she came and she said, you know, I'd never come really, never wasn't, this is my first time seeking God. I came and I loved listening and trying to understand the Bible. And then I brought a friend who was suffering with discouragement as well. And so we'd come, we'd sit in the back and we'd leave early because we don't talk to anybody. And um, we'd laugh, we'd cry, but we found God. And she was like this, thank you. And she handed me this letter and she walked away. You know what? That, I mean, that letter, boom, I'm good, I'm good for six months. <laughs> like you can hate me every week, throw stuff, I don't care. Something good happened, someone told me. So, do you hear me? That's the power of encouragement. Now, you may need encouragement today, but I'm gonna just ask you to take a moment. Right now, in the sermon, I'm gonna ask you to take a moment and write down somewhere, who do you know who needs your word of encouragement? Who can you encourage before this day is over? I want you, what if all 500 of you went and encouraged somebody today? How awesome would that be? Just, hey, I want you to know the impact you've had. I mean, that would be amazing, right? So take a moment here, name who you're gonna encourage. Dun, 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 dun. 
Dun, 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 Okay, you're done. You got something. That's the power of encouragement. Then, what about the power of affirmation? Because when Paul names these people, he makes them, he affirms them in ways that make them feel seen. And these are not, in other words, these are not generic greetings from someone like, oh, Stephen, you're awesome. It's not that. It's, hey, man, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the ways in which you've blessed me. I can't even, I could name them, but I won't. But thank you. Do you understand? Like specific affirmation, specific effort. Thank you for being an example of a good mom. Thank you for that, right? Thank you. I mean, there's specific affirmation goes a long way in transforming people's lives. And so when you read this list, Paul names, he doesn't just name people and say, oh, you're killing it or you're awesome, or you're cool, he actually names what they're doing well. Like he's paid, they feel known. That's the ministry of affirmation. Uh, I encountered a guy whose ministry of affirmation to me really changed my life. I studied, uh, I was in, when I was in high school, my dad died. I spent a year staying in my hometown to care for my mom. She was depressed. It was a very difficult year. I started getting depressed as well. I was mad at God. I was in a church that was fighting about divorce, fighting about speaking in tongues, fighting about, not women in ministry, they were fighting about, can women pass the offering plates? Can they even take the offering? And it was all this fighting. Yeah, you know, this kind of stuff. I hate, I didn't like it at all. So I was kind of done with church and kind of done with God and that kind of stuff. And then I went off to study architecture on the coast of California, a place called Cal Poly. And I met a guy in my dorm who had a ministry of affirmation. I watched him and he affirmed everyone in his world. And what I mean by affirmation is this. He would find like what you would do well and he would name it. And he'd, and he'd like fan, he'd pour gas on that flame, that one thing you do. And he often did it with a nickname for somebody, he would, he would call them something, right? So like I, I show up in this dorm and I'm, you know, I'm melancholic and, and I'm kind of depressed and I got doubts about my faith and all this stuff. But he, like what he picked up on was I play piano. So he said, hey, I want you to play piano in the Bible study. He didn't even ask. He said, you're gonna play piano in the Bible study. And, and then uh, he started, he would say, hey, your keys. Hey, Keys. Like, no one ever called me Keys before. That was super affirming, right? I was like, oh, he actually enjoys listening to piano, so I started playing more, started playing a little bit more, started playing a little bit more. Yeah, oh yeah, maybe, I, maybe people like this. That's a good thing. And then uh, that affirmation gave me, like a platform in a Bible study, gave me a social circle of friends, gave me a belief in myself. I ultimately changed major. I ultimately became a music major, right? Like. Here's a guy, he could have called me anything. Hey, skinny, he could have called me skinny. Hey, big ears, he could have called me big ears. He could have called me, uh, hey, melancholic guy. (laughs) Is it always raining inside your head? He could have said that. (laughs) But he didn't. He he said, keys, boom. Affirmation. Man, what a contrast. Like, back home, there's a guy in my church And he said, this is what he said. 
I have the ministry of crap finding. Like I will find what's wrong with you and name it. That's just, and he called it a ministry. That's not a ministry. I feel terrible every time I'm around you. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, and the Bible's called exhortation, but it's really just crap finding. Listen, there's no gift of crap finding, all right? Like, you know, I learned, really, I did learn this in architecture school. I learned this. All of us already feel terrible about ourselves, right? Like, we're insecure. We're anxious. We're afraid of failure. We're wondering what other people think of us. How refreshing for someone to come along and say, you have a gift, man. So, don't only think about who you're going to encourage. Who today will you affirm? Who will that be? That, that's huge. I went skiing with my youngest daughter on uh, whatever, last week, someday. And, and um, I, just, I offered a, a spontaneous word of affirmation at one point because she's just kind of taken up skiing very recently and uh, she's really taken to it quite quickly. So we went to a kind of a difficult ski area and she skied a lot. Some of you know it, Alpental. And then I said, hey, you want to go to the backside? So if you ski, you know the backside of Alpental. Chair two. It's like, yeah, that's, that's real skiing back there, you know? And here's my daughter skied about a year at the most. And she's like this, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. And so we're going up there. And she's looking and she's going, this looks terrifying. <laughs> and then we get off and she, she goes down, you know? And then we, when we get on the chair again, I said to her, I said, you know, I love all my kids, but this is what I want to affirm in you. This is what I want to affirm in you. You never cease to surprise me. Like my oldest daughter, super predictable. She wanted to be an English teacher since she was five. And she excels at it. And I love her for other things. But the child who surprises me the most, the one who surprised me the most, my youngest daughter. She said, you know what? That was way more meaningful to her than I, I mean, it was just a comment. No, no, it wasn't. It was an affirmation. She hugged me. Oh, Papa, <laughs> thank you. Wow, who knew that these... And here's the thing, many of us don't know. We don't know the power of our words. We know the power of affirmation. And conversely, we know the power of withholding affirmation. And so many of us are withholding affirmation with people in our lives who desperately need to be affirmed. And Paul's giving us an example here. He says, hey... If God is trying to create a community of people who are united, then let's get on with the ministries of encouragement and affirmation because there are some of us in the room that need to awaken to the, like the power of our affirming words. We need, we need to see. And I'm one of them in that Enneagram thing that some of you hate and some of you love. Uh, my... I know that I have a tendency to not be affirming. Like, so affirming, I gotta swim upstream because intuitively I don't go there. If there's a group of people and we're working on a project, I just wanna get on with the project. And when, as soon as the project is over, I, my first question is, how can we do that better? Always. But seeing Paul here, I've learned the power of affirmation. So now, it's much easier in a meeting, though it's counterintuitive, it's easier to go, hey, how you doing? And let's talk about relationship for a moment, rather than just being utilitarian. Does this make sense? 
And, and then to, to go even a step further and affirm someone. And then at the end of a project to celebrate what went well before immediately rushing into, you know, what could I do differently? So, power of affirmation. That's Paul's thing. Then, uh, Paul exhorts us to unity in verses 17 to 19. This is very interesting because this is what he says in one translation, verse 17, keep an eye on those who cause dissension. Now, he's closing his letter and so kind of last thoughts. What's he talking about? At the very end of his letter, unity. Look, at it, I've said this in every sermon since January 1 and I'll say it again and again. Paul's exhortation to unity is more important than ever because we live in an ultra-divided culture. Class, politics, race, religion, and within religion, denomination wars, gender wars, spiritual gift wars, and all these identities are filled with antagonism toward the other, fear toward the other, anger toward the other, and I just wonder what would happen if people saw the church as a reconciling force in our world, a uniting force rather than a dividing force. What would happen? I mean, we live in an increasingly fractious culture. What would happen if people actually saw the church as a reconciling force? That's why Paul writes this letter. <laughs> it's so that people will live into their calling as reconcilers so that, watch this, if you claim faith in Christ and I claim faith in Christ, boom, enough. That's our basis of fellowship. Not Christ plus our view on this, or Christ plus our vote, or Christ plus our economic status, or Christ plus the color of our skin. Christ plus nothing, unity. And if, that, if that's who we are, then we're demonstrating the reconciling power of the gospel. And, and, and Paul declares here that there are compelling arguments to lead people down a path filled with God words but lacking the reconciling power of the gospel. And I have God words, but no reconciling power. It's actually more destructive. I mentioned earlier, uh, Hitler persecuted what was called the Confessing Church in the 1930s. That's the group that wouldn't uh, swear unswerving allegiance to um, the Reich. But on the other hand, Protestants as a whole led the way in voting for Hitler before World War II. So like gather on Sunday, talk about the reconciling power of the, of the gospel, and then elect a guy who wants to wipe out six million Jews. Something wrong with this picture. Rwanda in 1990 was a Christian missionary success story. 90% evangelized, 90% of the country, nine out of 10 uh, proclaiming faith in Christ. And then all of a sudden, boom, within a, like an eight-week period of time, a million people dead, genocide. Uh, Hutus and Tutsis uh, killing each other. How does, how does that happen? Like, it happens because we have the God words, but we've missed the fundamental message. When you came to Christ, you're no longer Hutu and Tutsi. You're one in Christ. You're no longer male or female. You're no longer Protestant or Catholic. You're no longer up or down. You're no longer rich and poor, black and white. You're, you're in Christ and you're reconciled. Now make it, go make it visible. That's what he's saying. And the way you do that is in verse 19. Look what Paul says. He says, uh, uh, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Again, I'm using a different translation, J.B. Phillips here. 
because I love the, the, the language. I want you to, this is what he says, I want you to be experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Don't you love that? Experts in good. This is uh, what God has for us. Uh, in other words, we begin to listen for God's voice and when we, when we hear God's voice, we follow it, wherever it takes us. And conversely, we're going to listen for God's voice. And if God is trying to avoid something, we avoid it. Experts in good. We listen for God's voice. Cross a social divide. Offer a word of encouragement. Offer, begin a, an active ministry of affirming the people with whom you work. Affirming your parents. Affirming your children. Start affirming. Start encouraging. Like experts in good. And then not even beginners in evil. So you're listening to your conscience and you're allowing your conscience and your body to inform your decisions so that when you're coming up against something that's kind of out of bounds because it's going to destroy you, God's telling you, and Paul's saying, don't even go there. Don't go to stuff that's going to be destructive. Not even beginners in evil. Uh, in in uh, Titus, I think, no, excuse me, in Timothy, this is what Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and clear conscience. I'm going to key in on this and just share a quick illustration with you. Pure heart, clear conscience. What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, like God will speak to me when I'm moving out of bounds. Do you understand? So for some of you, it's a drink. It's out of bounds. For some, it's the second. For some, it's the third. Whatever. But the point is, I don't have to tell you, God will speak. When God speaks, You'll know it in your body. You'll know it in your heart. You'll know it. And here's what Paul's saying. When God speaks, boom. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Not even beginners in evil. Super liberating. I'll give you one example, at least how I play this out of my own life. Um, when I'm here Monday nights, sometimes uh, kind of living this bachelor lifestyle on Monday nights, I'm home alone. I'm watching, I can watch TV. And I don't watch much TV, but I started watching a show on Monday nights and I got hooked on it. I hate getting hooked on shows. Some of you do that, whatever, I'm not judging you. I'm saying I, I don't like it. So suddenly I realized, man, I started to watch this show like two weeks ago and I'm already in season three, episode eight. How did that happen, right? And then I, then I thought, I wonder what this is doing to me. Is this actually good for me or bad for me? I'm, you know blessed to have kind of a heart rate thing going here on my watch. So I can tell when I, and a stress monitor, it tells me, but I'm, it's, they'll say, in there, hey, you're chill right now, or you're about to die because you have too much stress. It'll tell me right in here. So, you know, I'm, you know I look at my watch when I'm, when I'm uh, preaching. Low stress, medium stress, whatever. It's all good. <laughs> rest, sometimes it even says rest, right? It's all good. Because this is easy. So I'm watching the show for the 15th time. Oh, my pulse is through the roof. Oh, it says here, high stress. You're about to die. In other words, stop watching. Are you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like your body tells you. Pay attention. Not even, not even beginners with evil. So if God is speaking to you about your, your alcohol or your greed or your bitterness, or you're watching a series serially, <laughs> pay attention. 
so that you can walk on the path that's life-giving. That's the thing. And then finally, and very briefly, Paul offers an encouragement to hope in verse 20. It was a basis of all of this. Like, why keep going? Here's why. Because we know the end of the story. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Like, when history ends, what's it look like at the end? Here's what it looks like. Every disease healed. Every war over. Every, every warring faction reconciled, right? Every, every broken relationship you know, restored. Where there needs to be forgiveness, there's forgiveness. Where there needs to be reconciliation, there's reconciliation. Where there needs to be, you know, justice and, and repayment, there's justice, there's repayment. But everything's made right in the end. And if that's where history's headed, celebrate now. Because to be blunt, it looks pretty bleak in the moment. More shootings last year than at any time in history in our country. More factionalism, more tribalism, more fear, racism, raising his ugly head. It's easy to give up. Here's what Paul says, don't give up. You know the end of the story. More than ever, be people of hope, right? Experts in good, not even beginners in evil. Encourage, affirm, rejoice, hope. Let's pray. Father, meet us at your table here. We may be encouraged this morning or discouraged, but in whatever state we are, you meet us and speak to us. So bless this moment, Father of worship, as we receive the body and the blood. We pray in Christ's name, amen.